Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Okay, great. I don't know how it's going to go. I mean, nobody knows how it's going to go. It's unknowable until we know it. That is true. Good morning. Good guten morgen. Your makeup how looks you... amazing. Thank you. I'm um, not doing well, so I'm acting opposite. You know that skill? Oh, I know. Oh, that's like, um, I would say like 90% of adulthood. Anyway, what's happening? What What is, if you want to get into it, like what's the overall arching shittiness? The overarching thing is just, well, my neighbor, I told you about. Okay. And I just want to put it out there and we'll get into the story, but I want to put it out there that I, um, we are in, and we've said this before on the podcast, in what I would call, and others like Gina would call probably similar, the great unraveling of our society. So it's like Rome is falling, and I, I don't even say it. It sounds so cavalier the way I'm saying it, but I literally every day see evidence of the great unraveling of the American sweater. You know what I mean? Like it's coming yes, out, yeah. and we, mm-hmm. it's okay. And I think one of those things is terrible neighbors. Right? Like people who yes. are terrible are just getting more terrible. So Gina has a neighbor that is very terrible. Yeah, people just over the last several years do seem to feel way more comfortable just being extremely uh, oh, hor- horrible, horrible. Um so what so this is the same neighbor that I've talked about before and basically the deal with her is it's like she's obsessed with us. And, and like what she doesn't understand is that we just work very hard to avoid her, you know, avoid interacting with her at any cost. I realized yesterday after she screamed at me that um, she has screamed at three fifths of my family members. She only hasn't screamed at the nine year old and the, and the 14 year old. It's so insane. Uh, She's the one who Aaron was walking the dog and he had a flashlight and the dog was really young and he was trying to train him. So he kept like stopping and starting. She screams out. It's very disconcerting to be sitting in my living room and seeing a flashing light in front of my house. Like he's like, I'm walking the dog. And the same one who, when she was walking her dogs and he was walking our dog, she's like, it's not a great time to be walking your dog because her dogs are out of control. Um, And she's yelled at my son a few times. Anyway. So what happened was I walked the dog. I picked up the poop. I had the little baggie. If it's anybody else's house, I feel comfortable putting it in their trash can. Yeah, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I hate to tell you people, but poop is trash. There's like nowhere else to put it. So if you if you are like not okay with pooping in your trash in a bag tied up, then you don't need to live in a society where there are dogs or where there are trash. Because that's what it honestly, is. Honestly, and it's like, I feel like a big part of what's driving all this bad behavior is just like so much entitlement. Like, I'm entitled to have only my trash in my trash can. And it's like, okay, you've never lived in New York City. Right. Because you don't understand anything about cooperative living. And anybody, whether they live in my neighborhood or not, is welcome to put their poop back Yeah, dude. 
So I'm walking by and I'm talking on the phone. So I'm somewhat distracted and I see this trash can and I go, I like reach out ever so tentatively, not tentatively, but like I had barely started to reach out, realized it was their house, didn't. And within milliseconds, she is out of her house screaming at me. And I hadn't even, you know, put the poop in there. And I'm talking about misbehavior. I mean, I don't think I've ever done this except for like having road rage in the car where the other person really can't hear me. Like I just screamed every obscenity in the book. I I, I hope nobody else, I'm sure somebody else heard, but nobody's contacted me. And, you know, I'll say this. I'm much better about taking a beat. Like I really wanted to blast her. I really wanted to like write a horrible message to her. I really want, and I, and I don't, I'm not refined enough, well enough, evolved enough to like get right to like, what's, what's the need of the matter. But I have figured out that I should probably just not say anything until, until I've thought about it. I had a good long think. She messaged me on social what? media. She said, I'm sorry I accused you of throwing trash in our trash can. And I just blocked her. I'm just like, you know, I, 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 I wanted, what I wanted to say is like, you have no idea how much time we spend trying to avoid you. You are unwell. You have yelled at three fifths of my family. Like never speak to me or my children ever again. Forget I exist. Forget I live right across the street from you because that's what I'm trying to do about you. So instead you just blocked her. Well, listen, that, that, because when you told me the story yesterday that she, that the reach out on social media hadn't happened. So now I'm like, I think what, before you said that part, I was going to say, like, I think our only recourse is what people do, which is start videotaping the insanity. And, um, I'm not sure that's a really a good solution. Like, I think that like, oh, sure. People put it on social media and then there's a laugh, but then we're really laughing at sort of the horribleness and the, and the mental illness of others. And it's their person and who knows how that's going to negatively affect them or their job or their family. So I don't like, I understand understand the the urge to videotape everything but I'm not sure that's really the answer with with um non-criminal behavior if it's a crime then it's something else but if it's just to embarrass or ashamed someone I I'm I have second thoughts about the videotaping now but good for you for just blocking it it you know what it is is if to say we are done with this we are done yeah. with this yeah, and you lie down with dogs and you get fleas. Yes. And I don't really want to bring that energy into my life. And sometimes, you know, if you get, if you're like a person who consumes as much media as I do, you get this false sense of like what I would do in that, you know, in a certain situation when it's theoretical, I feel very like not even brave, but just like aggressive and entitled. And I can get to a point where I feel like, I, 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 I can hear myself saying like, oh, I would kill that person or I would, which I've, of course I would never do. In fact, I don't even want to like say anything unkind about them in a very public way. So knowing me and knowing my values and you can just never go wrong if you stick with your own values. Like it's not my value to, it's not my value to tell people, you know what, here's the thing you need to know about yourself. And it's not my value, even though I do that with people, people that I know, but not strangers. And uh, it's my value to like keep as much peace in my life as possible. And it's not my value to engage with toxic people with whom I could only ever have a toxic 
yeah. you know, interaction. Right. It's not going to get better. It's like a legit never going to get better because it's just, that's not how, that's not how it works if you engage in that. So anyway, that, okay, but that, that has nothing to do with the overarching shitty. No, the overarching thing is just like, wow, parenting is so hard. Um, people, people are really, people learn at different rates. People learn lessons at different rates. People mature at different rates. Like, and having patience for somebody who's really behind in so many ways is exhausting and overwhelming to me. So there's that piece. There's like, um, you know, a relative with having a health crisis. There's there's just stuff going on. And, um, but this is what I'm doing differently this time. Okay. I am trying to stay with myself, mm-hmm. which is to say, uh, yes, things are terrible. Things are going wrong, but I am not going to abandon myself in the process yeah. of like feeling my way through it. And in fact, that's another new thing is I'm feeling my way through it. And I'm really trying to apply this thing about taking a beat and like, how crazy, you know, Aaron is also having, we're ha- simultaneously having this growth moment. And, and, you know, he recently made a big stride with uh, somebody in his family who's having a health crisis. And he, he said, you know, something I like, I'm not going to go to crazy town. Like I, he, I saw the light bulb for him. Like I have a choice about whether or not I want to go to crazy town on this. And, and actually I don't because actually it's bad for my, because you know, you I was thinking about this when I was at Costco today and I was doing some something small and I was wanting to like do it really fast. And I thought, why do I want to do everything so fast? Like my shoulders are tense all the time. Like I don't want to do anything so fast anymore. There's no reason. I'm not in any rush. Like I, there's, it's, it's just a habit from youth. I feel like just doing everything in a big rush, rush, rush. And I think yeah. it's time to let that go. Oh, I mean, it's so, I feel like it's such an intense and like right on timing because, um, there's this whole movement about rest. Have you heard about this? Like rest is radical. Rest is as a revolution. So there's a black um, woman and I believe I, 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 I am ignorant to what her like specialty is area. And I just started hearing about it. And miles, my husband was listening to her, an interview with her about how rest, not napping, not, but like really snatching and holding dear to the idea of rest as, as radicalism, rest as a revolution, um, opposite of hustle culture is like going to be the way that we, this is my interpretation of what she's saying, like the way that we sort of fight injustice and in fight racism, all the isms is by really um, embracing rest culture as opposed to hustle culture. I love that. And by the way, Black women are spawn every good thing there is in the world. Like you find a trend that's happening in society that you like and think is really positive, you can definitely trace it back to a black woman who 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 started who started it. So that's great. I'm pro rest. I'm pro, and I'm also trying to do less of like I'm a human being, not a human doing. And like if I don't cross everything off of my to-do list that doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not like I'm, it's not a wasted day if I didn't get all my little tasks done, you know, especially if I was emotionally dealing with something else. Yes. Yes. That's the other thing. It's that the, the emotional, you know, I think like if it's become such sort of a, I don't know, buzzword or whatever phrase, emotional labor. But I do think that the time that I spend 
um, thinking, feeling, and, and, and doing internal work, I've never counted as anything. And I think the way and, and watching, especially having watched in white male dominated Hollywood for so long, let me tell you something, those motherfuckers rest. Okay. They rest when they, when, so don't you think for one second that the people who are on top or seemingly running shit or whatever, or are running shit are not resting because they are, they they can, they maybe set the trend for hustle culture, but they're really talking ultimately about the rest of us hustling because they have yachts and vacation homes they rest. I don't care what you say. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's such it's like a comical notion that these masters of the universe are really hustling all the time because all of their work is built on the backs of people who are oppressed in one way or another. So really, everybody under them is hustling. Correct. Much much more than they are. Right. Because and, yes, and they've been able to outsource all their. Uh, you know, have a domestic everything. Labor, been able to out, yeah, everything. Yeah. And like, I think, I think the other, the other sort of weird shit is that, like, uh, you know, the older I get, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, is the more I realize, like, it's all a pyramid scheme, right? Like, so any capitalism thing that you're into, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's Wall Street, whether it's I don't care, like anything, whether you work in tech, anything is all basically a pyramid scheme because that is what capitalism is. And so I feel like there are just more and more subtle ways in which I am seeing that the, you know, the rules are never fair and the, what's behind the curtain is always the same, which is a select few who tend to be, you know, white males are really running the show. And we shall see what, if it, if if it changes without a civil war, like I I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always think of like great ideas for memes, but then I never make them. But we should do one of like, you know, a picture of that, uh, of the Wizard of Oz. And, and when we see the curtain and, you know, what the Internet is what has yeah. opened the curtain, really, you know, kind of exposed and reality TV to some degree has exposed and documentaries have exposed like the, the truth of what's going on. The great unraveling is also like the great discovery of what the actual truth is sure yes i mean when you when you unravel the sweater it's like what is under there is is like this old decrepit white dude who's um flabby and and not in shape telling the rest of us that we're fat lards and need to get it together and that is what's happening so i'm not and the other thing i'm not doing it's really interesting it's like i've made a conscious decision to literally stop um, following up with people who are not following up with me. Yes, yes. I'm not following up. I'm not circling back. I'm not, um, I'm not hitting you up again. I'm not waiting three months and then putting it on my calendar to circle back. I'm done. I'm done with all that. I don't, I don't have any more resources to circle back. Like I'm not willing. So if we have a thing and we're supposed to meet and you can't do it or you, you keep putting it off, it's over. Unless you want to come out of the blue and say, Hey, I realize that like we never met. Are you interested in meeting on this day at this time? And then I am okay because it is just my following up is taking up too much 
much time. I'm not, I'm it's not taking interested up too anymore. much time. It's that's emotional labor too. And also like I've gotten to the point in life where I, if, if I reach out and somebody says, yeah, and then we go, you know, we try to yeah. firm it up and they, they ghost me, which by the way, I have done bajillions me of times too. too. I just understand it as the way that you're communicating to me non-verbally that you actually don't want Correct. to be a part of this thing, Correct. which is totally fine because a lot of us overcommit and can't, you know, carry out our commitments. It's fine. But I'm less inclined even after like one interaction that because the person is telling me who they are, if not who they are, how they actually feel, you know, because you make, you make, you make time for whatever you want to make time. for. That is absolutely true. And I also feel like I am so like, okay, so we bought this house. We bought, I don't know if you know this, but we bought the second house. We didn't buy the first house. The first house was got infested with. No. Oh yeah. I forgot to tell you this because I was waiting for the podcast, but, um, and then anyway, uh, that first house, uh, I have to send you the pictures of our real house. The first house, um, was owned by open door, which is a horrible private equity company that just bought up all the houses in Southern California. And anyway, they communication is horrible. They treated my realtor and us like crap. And and so we just walked away from the deal, got our earnest money back because they would not fucking fix their fucking $8,000 termite problem. So we were like, bye, I'm done. So then we found this other house built in 1980 that I fucking adore. And so it is so dope and I am restoring it to its 1980s glory. So it's going to be an 80s, like what? every room, every room is going to have sort of an anchor of 1980. It's a very specific year because it's like the, the seventies are still, which is why I was like, can you make my neon sign yes. pink? By the way, which I did look into and I would love to do for you, but to get what we want to put on it is like a minimum of thousand dollars. Yeah. Let's not so, do that. Don't do that. We'll do it. Yeah. yeah. We could do you like just... F A slash F. I was trying to do like F A slash F O, you know, to, as a, yeah. like as an acronym. Um, you can just do fun. Like, people do it all the time. People put F F A. Yeah. Yeah. Just do that. Don't worry about it. Okay. Okay. But so, okay. So what I'm saying is like, I'm obsessed now with picking out pieces for this new home that we, we, we close on the 7th of November and we move at the end of November. And, um, so all this to say is like, I've realized I would much rather look at giant pink velvet sectionals that are retro um, refurbished from the 19 from 1980 then fucking follow up and circle back with your motherfucking whatever you're gonna help me with I would much rather look at oh my god they made what in the 80s that is I, I would much rather like focus it on my life and like how to bring creativity and art to this, our first home that we're going to own, you know, and then fucking track you, your ass down. Who doesn't want to hang out with me in the first place? Bye. Bye. Hey, let me run this by you. Today is about rejection. Um, oh, I love it. I, I, I'm sure we've talked about it here. Oh, I'm sure we've run it by each other before here. But, you know, it's one of those perennial topics. So uh, um, I, like, re- truly by happenstance, learned about an opportunity to direct something. Um, not with a theater company that I used to work with, but a, a different or- organization. And it just so happened they were doing 
this play and and the person who was producing it was like oh we're looking for a director who's this and this and I go oh my god that's me yeah so she says great you know and submit and I submitted and and I had I submitted and four months before I got a call from anybody saying can you come in for an interview and then when they did not a call an email from somebody who emailed me at 2 p.m asking me if I could come at 7 p.m yeah now I wanted to do this, so I I did. I hustled. I got it together. I wrote up like my, I wrote like a thesis basically on who I am as a director, and then I went to the interview with with eight eight or nine people there. Oh my and, god! Yeah, and you know there was one qualification for this job that I was missing, but it wasn't something. It was to me, it wasn't a deal breaker. And I was very upfront. I said it right in the beginning. Anyway, this theater is not necessarily that high profile, which is an understatement. I just can't believe that's too many people in a fucking interview. No, I literally yeah. wrote eight person. It's too scary. In person? Yes, in person. And honestly, like, even that wasn't bad because I, you know how you can just get in there and be in the zone and turn it on. And I was charming and I was, you know, a- answering questions like honestly, but in a way that I felt demonstrated my competence, et cetera. Now I didn't exactly have it in my mind. Like they'd be lucky to have me, but when I got rejected, I thought they would have been lucky to have me. Like that was a mistake. What the fuck um, did they reject you for? What the fuck? Who'd they pick? What the fuck? They, I don't know. And I've, you know, I'm trying to be politic here because there's people that I like who are part of this group, but it just it just didn't work out that way. Um, they they so I don't know. I don't know who they picked, but they but at the end of her email, she said, we'd like you to resubmit for like this next opportunity. And so I'm working on, you know, like, mm, it's not that if I had to do it over again, I would have done it differently. But when I really got clear with myself about things, I, you know, I was not that excited about this opportunity because it wasn't going to do anything for my career. It really was just going to be like an opportunity to direct and flex my muscles, which I would have loved to do. And so I, I, you know, as an actor, you have to deal with rejection all the time. I just would love to know, like, actors do seem to have amazing strategies seasoned ones and the thing i hear the most often people say is like after the audition just forget it don't ever think about it again but i would love to hear what your strategies look i think that for people that are that are working and auditioning or interviewing all the time that you that that is a really good strategy the brian cranston method which is you you just do it and forget it however for those of us who don't do that every day all day long where it's like the one one thing is more important because it's the one thing that we go out for. Like I, like for me, I don't audition all the time. So like when I get an opportunity from my agent, I take it really seriously and I want to book it. And I'm, I really put in a lot of work and time. Okay, fine. So I, it's so easy to say one and done, like forget it. But I think that that's great if that's where people are. Like, Brian Cranston, okay, does he even have to audition for things anymore? I don't know. Um, but for me, the thing that really works is what something you just said, which is to really go through and say, 
did I, what, what did I want about this thing? Because did I just want to be picked? Because of course that's really valid. Like who the fuck doesn't want to be special and picked? If you say you don't, you're a sociopath like that. I don't care, you know? So I want to be loved and picked. So that hurts on that level. And then if I go deeper, I'm like, okay, but what is the thing that I liked about this particular interaction, possible collaboration? Okay. Well, I really wanted to get more practice on what for me would be like practice on set, working out how not to be nervous on set. Okay. So I'm going to miss that opportunity. But like, if I look at the text, did I really connect to it? Not really. So it's not that. So I think it's just like literally like what you said before, which is giving yourself and myself the time to feel my way through and think, okay, like what is upsetting about this? What is upsetting? For me, it would be if I was in your shoes, it would be like, I spent a lot of time and energy interfacing with these people, even if it was like, so if you, from when you submitted even though that you weren't like thinking about it all the time, it was still hanging in the air for four months, right? It's a four month long, even if it's in the back of your, if, of, in the ethos, it's still there. Okay. So it's still like on the table. And then you finally have an interview with all these people, lovely people, whether or not it doesn't matter. You're still giving, putting out so much fucking energy And so what it feels to me like, I would feel like, oh, like I did my best. I put myself out there. I made a case for myself and my work in front of a lot of people and I didn't get the thing. And that just feels shitty. It does. It just, and there's no way around it. Like sometimes things just feel shitty. And um, I did definitely want to be picked. The the idea that somebody would, you know, the... Like I'm a sucker for an opportunity to be picked for something. I don't. I don't necessarily like avoid things. I don't avoid things that could, you know, possibly lead in rejection. I I, I approach those things or I try to. Um, but it was the thing I said earlier. Like I just wanted. I just thought, oh, it'd be so fun to to work on this. But upon reflection, there are one million things I could be working on and would love to work on. And that would have prevented me from, do, you know, for a period of time that would have prevented me from working on those things. So it's a blessing. And I, what, what's for you will not go by you. I totally believe in that. And I, it was my, in fact, it was my mantra that, you know, yesterday when I found out. So, and, 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 um, and to be yeah. fair, like you just found out. So like, if it was like three months from now, like I've had friends who, and I mean, I may have had this too, where like, it lasts more than 24 hours, this feeling of why did I get rejected? Why, 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 what could I have done? Why didn't they like me? Look, it's been less than 20, you know, you're fine. Yeah, like yeah, you're not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, but rejection is something that is like the, the true, the true greats that I love, um, seem to their take on rejection is like, it gets easier the more you get rejected. We are talking to Tina Huang. You're in for such a treat. Tina is amazing. Not only does she star and has starred on almost all of the soap operas, you've seen her in television, film. She's an actor, a writer, a director, a producer. She does film, television. She's a voiceover artist too. She does theater. She truly, truly, truly does it all. We really loved talking to her and we hope you enjoy our conversation with Tina Huang. We're not totally 
you you survived and you went you did a lot of things i i mean first we're gonna get to it all but can i just say um and i can because this is this is this is the platform to say it i love that you were on two soap operas and maybe more, maybe more than two. Were you on more than two or just? Yeah. Yeah. Because. But, but, yeah, go ahead. No, most recently just two, but yeah. Okay. So here's the thing about that is that um, I don't care. We went to theater school and I know a lot of people think that that is, uh, or some people talk shit about uh, soap operas in terms of acting. Yeah. I have yeah. never seen or heard actors work as hard as my friends that have been on soap operas. And in terms of the pace and the pacing and the um, the amount of work that is required of of, of actors on soap operas, stunning. So I just love it because I think that it is like, from what my, what I know about it, it's like a gymnastics routine that people are doing on those sets. So we'll go, I just want to say that. I like give full props to that because it's not a joke, soap opera work. It is not a joke. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I so, appreciate that. Yeah. Shout out. Yeah. Thank okay. you. So I'll just ask then, pursuant to that, because I think you are the first person we're interviewing who was on a soap opera. And I would love to know everything about the process of your audition and how you, because I've heard, I, I used to, I used to, when I was in high school, my show was Days, and I read Soap Opera Digest and everything, but I would love to know, like, I've heard some people describe it as more of a, it ha- can sometimes have a feeling of more of a regular job, since it's like daytime hours, et cetera, but I would love to hear what your experience of just the work of being on a soap opera. Well, uh, first of all, I love everyone that I work with. I'm, I'm on Days, so. Well, you're um, still on. Really, oh my god! I'm still on it. I'm still on it. So, in fact, I'm like shooting six episodes next week. So, oh I'm my. on a little break in Canada, <laughs> just like here having a little vacation before. Good we go for you! Oh my yeah. gosh, six in a week. It's like Saturday Night Live. What's happening? Okay, how did you get on yeah. these? What was your first one that you were on? First of all, was it the first? The first one I was on was, I think, Days. And then when I first came to L.A., and then I did General Hospital, and then I did Young and the Restless, and then I did, then I was on Bold and the Beautiful and Days at the same time during the pandemic, and then now I'm on Days, only doing Days. Oh my, Tina, Tina, bow down. Tina, this is, this is, this is incredible because what this tells me is that you are extremely obviously talented, but we know that because I've seen you on Rizzoli and I, all the things, but it's also, you are, um, um, must be really wonderful to work with because people keep bringing you back and back and back. So you must be like a real sort of team player, which I bet is part of your theater train. Like you are an ensemble, right? Yes. I think the best part about doing any of this is the collaboration part. You know, when people don't want, it's funny when people don't like notes and don't like getting notes, I'm always like, I love notes. Like I can't just do this on my own and act in a bag. Like I need, I need you to like, tell me what's going on. What do you see that I don't see? You know, all of that is, that's the best part, the collaboration. Yeah. So I'm still eager to know a little bit more about like the, how you how it started with oh. your audition and how you f- experienced the day to day work of being a soap opera actor sure. as opposed to any other type of actor. Sure. Um, well, I I got the audition to to go in for days and I read for Marnie Setia, who I hope I'm saying her name right, um, who's the casting director, and it went well. And she said, you know, we have a callback, and I said, great. Uh, I can't remember if that was the next day or if that was the same day. It may have been the same day. And she told me to just wait. 
I can't remember because the producers were upstairs and they wanted to do producer sessions right away. And, or I, it may have been the next day and she, they sent sides, you know, again, but I just assumed they were the same audition and it was like 14 pages. <gasps> it was like a lot of pages, but just so you know, soap scripts are, you know, one and a half spacing. Oh, yeah. So it's not single spacing. But still. But still it's a, it's oh, a lot of Listen, I, I'm like an under 10. I like always do an under 10 because that's my jam. I have trouble with that. I don't, oh my, you must be, you're, okay, so you get all these pages and you assumed it was the same, but I'm guessing it wasn't the same. So I show up and she wanted to just read all of us ladies that came back in to, to, for the producer session and just like talk to us and all that kind of stuff. And she said, so you got the new scenes? And I said, uh, n- new scenes? Uh, n- no. And then she said, oh, well, we got to go. We got to go up to the producers right now. So we all walked up. And she goes, don't worry. I'll put you last. You know, don't, here's the new scripts. Oh, she my God. Uh, I'm peeing my and- pants right here. <laughs> okay, go ahead. And I don't remember how different it was, but I, I think it was quite different. <laughs> like, And... Um, she said, just take, you know, whatever time we'll put you last. And there was like maybe four, four women that, excuse me, my nose is running, but, um, four women ahead of me. And, uh, I just studied. Oh my God. You were like, okay, NYU. Okay. um, Tons of Shakespeare memorization. Don't fail me now. So, okay. So you go, were you nervous? Which gets harder when you get older. (laughs) No shit. Okay. So you go in the room and there's producers there. Obviously it's a producer session. And is the casting lady still in the room with you? She's still in the room. And it was only one producer, the executive producer. So it was just him, but it was a big conference room. Anyway, when I was waiting to go in, one of the actresses, like, I guess they overheard what had happened. And this, this, another actor said, uh, you didn't get the sides. And I said, no, you didn't get the new scenes. I said, no. And she said, that sucks. That's terrible. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to study. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. I'm just like, study. be quiet. I like, mean, leave me alone. Right. Right. Not helpful. I mean, not I, helpful. Not helpful. I'm I'm not that person. I don't compete with anybody in the audition room. I compete with myself. And I think maybe that's part of my success. I just I'm hard enough on myself. I don't need to add like everyone else as a distraction. But it was really interesting. Um so so then um he, he they called me in and it went really well. I mean it was just this huge conference room with a giant table in between us. So it was like not like a theater setup um, or an audition room, a normal audition room. And it went really well. I mean, I think I sobbed. I think I was shaking. I think like all of those things. And maybe it was from the, that cold read sort of nerves that just let sure. me just go with my, just go with my intuition, you know? Yeah. Right. So. No time to think and obsess and, and worry about it. Right. Yeah. Do you get to like, considering how much dialogue you have to memorize every single day for the next day's work, um, is there any room for improvisation or do you, are you supposed to say it word for word? Supposed to say it word for word. I think there's a little bit of leeway, you know, the longer you've been on the show they, they don't, you can't improv for sure. It's all written, but you know, if you get a the instead of and, or, you know, those little things, the pace is so quick that they're not going to, redo the t- and we usually get one to two takes right we don't get oh multiple my takes. god so, um it moves at an incredible speed so when you said what you said about soap acting and soap actors i really have a tremendous respect uh i think a lot of people like to put judgment on high art and low art and i, I don't really get the point of that <laughs> but uh 
but they, it, it, people love it. People watch it. It gives them a sense of comfort. And the actors that I've met are so hardworking and so talented, like very good actors. Um, they're just in the job that they're in. You know what I mean? And a lot of it's, a lot of the soap acting is soap work has gotten better. So. Absolutely. I would go so far as to say that's probably a sexist thing that soap, uh, um, soap operas have the, whatever reputation that they do um because you know anything that a lot of women like people tend to denigrate right um (laughs) okay so did you always want to be an actor did you always want to go to theater school what was your journey when you were picking colleges wow um you know i being a asian american woman i didn't really see that it would be a possible career path for me Um, I was like a secret artist, you know, like inside, I really wanted to be on the stage and I really wanted to act and all of that, but I didn't have examples really. I think growing up, I had like for a short stint, Margaret Cho and, and Lucy Liu and, you know, very few. And then like Chinese actresses that I knew of. Um, but it was a tough journey. So I secretly auditioned for LaGuardia Music and Art and Performing Arts in New York City, you know, the Fame High School. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know that you went there. And I'm wondering, like, you seek, what does it mean to secretly audition where you didn't tell your folks and you were like, I'm out? Didn't tell my folks. Yeah. I mean, how old are you when you start high school? I mean, I was probably. Oh, yeah. What are we, 12? No, 13. 13. Yeah, no, 13. Really young. Really yeah, young. 12 or 13. You do that on your own. So I, you know, I grew up in New York City, so I took the subway up. I, I applied to audition. And well, first I was in the, the fine arts program, so which they also didn't like. And I had a, an amazing art teacher in junior high school who mentored me to make, make a portfolio and all this kind of stuff. So I'd gone up and did the art test without telling my parents. And I, and I got into the art program. Wait a minute. And then, so you didn't secretly... wait. You didn't get into that. You went for fine art for for. And you. What do you mean the art test? What the hell is that? That sounds horrifying. <laughs> what do you mean an art test? So, <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't audition yet for theater because I think it was too scary at that moment for me. So first, I did the art program because I was encouraged by a grown-up teacher who was like, thought she saw talent in me, which was very amazing to have a teacher like that. Um. And uh, the art test was you had to have a full portfolio, like at least 10 or 15 pieces in a portfolio. So you carry that big old thing. Like imagine a 12-year-old kid carrying a portfolio uptown. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy when I think about it. Um, and then you get there and there's like um, a still life set up and there's all the, everybody sits around on desks and you have to draw. You have to draw the still oh life. Oh, God. Oh, the pressure. And then, they bring in, and then they bring in a model and then you have to draw the model. Um, no, this is like, this is like my nightmare of like any kind of that where you're like, it's a test anxiety, high pressure, high pressure, pressure creativity, high pressure on the spot creativity. I would have been passed out. I would have (laughs) passed out. I don't think so. I mean, look, we we're all, it's a good prep for like auditioning and callbacks and just, we're all, you're always under pressure. We're under pressure right now doing the podcast, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think growing up in New York, you're constantly under pressure. So uh, I, I maybe I was used to it for that reason. But uh, I do have do to say, thing. Tina, Tina, there is something about you yes, that is like super um, badass, tough, even just the way you <laughs> present and your voice in the best possible way. So like, 
And I wonder if that is a mix of, you know, New Yorker, Asian American parents. My, my guess is I'm the a daughter of an immigrant. Your daughter of an immigrant, right? Of immigrants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's like a toughness about you. And like, all I can, like, uh, you're a badassery. Do you think it is, um, New York? What is it? Where does that come from? Because you should play, you, you should play an assassin and a, um, like a, a like an action hero in, in like huge films. Why isn't that? Ha- we got to oh. make that happen today. Anyway. So- yeah. Let's just call Kevin Feig and yeah. just let him know. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm available. Well, I, I think you touched on it. I think it's all those things that make up who I am. I, I, I am tough. I am tough, but I, like I, I, but I don't see myself necessarily that way. Um, I'm like, you know, I think we've, I think I spent actually a lot of years trying to counteract that tough expectation by being like smiley and sweet and doing the things that I think women tend to do, women identifying women tend to do like by softening themselves and being smaller in the room. And I think over the years, as you get older, you hit 40 and you're like, fuck that. Oh, am I allowed to curse on this? Okay. (laughs) You're just kind of like, absolutely. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fucking over this. Um, but I think it's all those things. I think definitely New York and always having your defenses up and always having an awareness um, around you and having parents that worked extremely hard and sacrificed a lot and knowing that I could sacrifice more. I think that's also part of like surviving as an artist. Like, do I need to eat that fancy thing today? Do I need to have that new outfit like no I if I want to succeed then those are the things I need to let go of in order to invest in my career um so yeah I think a lot of it is identifying as an Asian American female I think having immigrant parents for sure that work really hard um I think New York City and all of its uh dangers (laughs) that I survived so I survived theater school and New York City um and now I'm trying to survive LA yeah, yeah, right, right. So, a, lot of, a lot of surviving happening. So at what point did you, well, obviously you told your parents that you applied and that you got in for the fine arts program. Yeah. They obviously had to get on board with that at some point because you're still doing it. But then tell us about the switch into acting. So it was my first year as a, as the, you know, a drawing, painting, sculptor. And I just found it really lonesome. Like I, 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 I was like a little emo kid, you know what I mean? Like all this angst. I had just had so much angst because I grew up, I had a rough childhood. And I I just felt, found myself in a little bit of a depression as a freshman in high school, which is, I guess, not that rare. But um, I just kept looking at the theater department and seeing these kids getting to like fully ex- express themselves and be around others like them. You know, painting is a solitary thing. I think like writing. I don't know if you have that experience, the two of you, because I read that you're both writers. Um, And I write as well. And it's a very different world you're in. So I decided to just do it, apply to the theater department. And that process, first, it's like two monologues, right? Contemporary and a classic. Do you remember what you did? Do you remember what you did? Oh. It's okay. Oh, boy. I bet it was great, whatever it was. The modern piece, I don't remember the name of it or, or where it was from, but it was it was a girl um, witnessing her parents' her parents' divorce and but going through her house and talking about how the home represented the family 
um, you know, and, and like where things belonged in the house and how those things are going to be moved. And that means their family no longer existed, exists. So it was a really beautiful piece. I can't remember where it was from. Um, and then the other one was Shakespeare. And I'm sure I did a terrible job. <laughs> uh, it may have been... Same. I don't remember same. the Shakespeare. Yeah, I don't remember the Shakespeare. That's funny. Yeah, but I bet, you know, uh, oh, he, you go, you know, you know. It was, it was Portia. The quality of mercy is not straight. Oh, it, yes. It, uh, that's exactly yeah. what I did. <laughs> yeah. so terrible. So terrible. Wait a yeah. minute. So we have, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm just picturing both you two. Um, for Gina, I'm wondering, I'm thinking it was to get into DePaul's theater school, right? Okay, and Tina, yours was even younger because you were trans- you were like 15, 14, playing Portia? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> 14-year-old Portia's all around. Okay, so you must have, okay, so then what did you, did, what, did it go on from there? Like you did your monologues? Oh, so yeah, so then you do that and then there's a callback. So you go to another room with a different auditor. And I'm trying to make sure I don't blend my high school audition to my college audition. But um, then we went from that callback to a screen test. So you have to do a screen test. And then... Wait, um, wait. A screen test for LaGuardia? Yeah, wow. like... Yeah. At, at the time, at the time, yeah, it, I, I remember that because I remember they said you have to go to the screen. So there's like a camera and you... Whatever. On-camera audition. And then from there... Oh, I, I remember there was five steps. Um, I can't remember what the... I remember you, we may have had to go into the theater and do like a like theater exercises and movement stuff. And then we had to do a interview, one-on-one interview with the head of the department. So it was, you know, a lot of steps to. This is so far tougher than it was for the audition. Like we had to do those other things you're describing, but we did not, I don't think we did a one-on-one interview. No. Was it nerve wracking? Yeah. I mean, as a kid, I, I guess I didn't really like, I didn't maybe didn't sink in that I was, that that's what was happening, but I just, you know, followed the line. I, whatever they told me where I needed to go, I just went and did it. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it was a lot more steps than my college audition as well. As well. So, so you got in, did they just tell you on the spot, Tina, or were you, how did it work? And then were you, did you tell, did your parents know you were switching? Uh, no, they didn't know. No, they didn't know. <laughs> no, I think I, I think I just got a letter. I don't, I don't know if, I don't think they, I think they gave me the sense that it was a good fit, but I don't think I knew until later. Cause it's like thousands of kids in New York city. You know what right, I mean? Right. Auditioning. Yeah. So, so I'm curious about whether the, like what, what the pipeline situation was from LaGuardia to conservatories. Cause a lot of kids who get training young or get working young, don't go for theater school because they figure like, well, I already know what I'm doing. So like, what, what, how was it at LaGuardia? Did mostly kids go and pursue performing arts in college or what? You know, I think a handful of us did, but honestly, I, I think a lot of people didn't continue on. So it was kind of a weeding out process. You know, a lot of people went into poly, political science. A lot of people went into you know, a lot of different things. I mean, a lot of people I, I remember I went to high school with are doing amazing things currently. I mean, one of one of the girls I was friends with, she's like a pundit on CNN, <laughs> like like one of the leading, she went into politics and then became like a, a on camera. So those two worlds sort of merged. Um, 
but yeah, no, I, I think I ended up applying to four schools four conservatories. So SUNY purchase Rutgers, I don't remember NYU and what was I'm going to just throw out Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was Carnegie. I, no, no, no. It was Boston university. I actually, it was interesting. I didn't, I didn't, I was so, I don't know. I just, I didn't do Juilliard and I didn't do Carnegie Mellon. I don't know why. Um, Oh, I know why Pittsburgh. (laughs) I didn't want to go to Pittsburgh. Sorry if, if either of you have a fondness for Pittsburgh, but I didn't want to be there. Never been. And also Um, I have a friend that went to the Carnegie Mellon program and started in 1993 and they weighed them at the, in their acting classes, they weighed them. So I'm glad we didn't go. I mean, you know, whatever we miss it. Not missing out. Forget, forget Pittsburgh. Also the weighing fuck you. So, okay. So you, you auditioned, did you do like the Erda, like with all of them at once, Tina, or did you go, how did it work for your colleges? And then tell us how, how you made your choice. So, uh, yeah, I think I, did do them, you know, they, they set up the appointments to the different places. I remember that. I really wanted to go to SUNY Purchase. I do remember that because Israel Hicks was the head of the department then. And I remember thinking, oh, he's an amazing teacher to study under. Um, and it was such a small conservatory program. Um, so I went up there. That, that By that point, I did tell my parents I was going to theater school. And they were not happy about it. <laughs> I mean, imagine, they're immigrants, right? They came across the world not speaking the language giving up everything, working very, very hard to make a better life for their children. And then their one child that didn't go to co- that is going to college wants to be an artist. I mean, that's like pretty brutal for them to absorb. But um, yeah, I, you were saying when you leave high school, like why, why go into the theater school? I, because I, both my brothers had not gone to college, my older brothers, and my parents were, you know, had immigrated here. And like, I just, I felt like college was really important. I felt like getting an education was really important. And maybe I remember thinking at the time, imagine being 17 and thinking I'm ruining my career because I thought it was going to slow down my career. Um, because I did have when we have an industry night at the end of high school and I got a manager, a New York city manager, and I was freelancing with all these different agents. And for like the few months that I was not going to leave New York, and, um, wait a minute, wait a minute, they, wait a minute. I got to go back here. Cause I'm in awe. Gina, are you in awe? Cause I'm in awe that you, you had an industry night at, in high school and you got mm-hmm. a manager from that. You're mm-hmm. how old? 17? 17. Okay. Yeah, 17. You have a manager and you're freelancing. What did that feel like? I mean, I'm like that. I'm like in awe. Were you like, I am the shit or are you like, this is just what I do. You're like a young, like a 17 year old professional actor. What in the hell? <laughs> I think, I think I was kind of like feeling like my dreams were coming true in a lot of ways, but I don't think I was secure in it. I definitely for sure was like, this could go away tomorrow. Um, am I doing the right things? You know, that manager at the time, she was lovely, but she did say to me, like, you should move to Los Angeles. And at that point, I just wanted to go to college. And and most of the options were on the East Coast that I wanted to, to, you know, except for Boston University. Well, Boston's East Coast, too. But um, she just said, like, well, I just feel like if you move to the West, to L.A., like, later, you're going to be over the hill. I was 17. I was 17. 
And I mean, so that's it's like, like that's such really projection. It's such projection. It's all, I mean, they mean, even if they mean well, it's still projection. So you had this manager, but you were, and you were auditioning, I'm assuming, in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. But then yeah. but you really I, wanted to go to college. And so I really wanted to go to college. Okay, so you wanted to go to SUNY. What happened there? Why how did you end up at NYU? Oh, so I got in um to purchase, uh, which was which was a tough choice because SUNY purchase is like at the time was so cheap for in state like residents. And then but I, I can't explain this to you at all, but I went when I went and auditioned for NYU, uh I fell asleep at the audition. I remember in the waiting room. I just like kind of <laughs> nodded off, and I just think I just needed to be relaxed, you know. So because there was all these like what a power move. No, <laughs> I, I I don't know if I was just like you know overwhelmed or I don't think it was overwhelming, but I just felt like I just needed to relax. And there was like you know a bunch of young act New York City actors, and at the time NYU was a top conservatory, and I think I there was like all these young actors that were like, <laughs> like doing all the warmups, which I believe in a hundred percent. I do it before shows, but like, but it intimidated me in some way. Cause I was like, well, I didn't start acting until I was much older. I mean, I was young, but you know, in New York, it felt like everybody's a kid actor that was in acting. So I don't know. I, uh, I fell asleep and then they woke me up and said, it's your turn. I was like, Oh, okay. And I went in, and I remember in all my auditions, I did this weird thing, which, which I don't know if it's an, I, I took my shoes off in every audition. Like I, I felt like I needed to be grounded. Oh my God. So it's go a power in. move. It's a power move. Listen to me. Anyone, this is how I feel now watching youngsters. I mean, I don't hold auditions, but when, when someone has a specific bold take on, uh, on how they are going to enter a room. They, they're a, a yards ahead of everybody else. You made a bold move, Tina. And I, <laughs> I support it. I support it. You, it's like you, you had a take. Good for you. I, I think I just needed to take care of myself. And I, I think at the time I didn't really have a lot of um, protection and people taking care of me in that way as a young artist. So I think I just had my own process. Um, but part of that was being weird and saying, I need to take my shoes off and taking off my shoes. I've never told anyone that before. Um, so yeah, this I did all my, so related. this is so related to you being tough and, and a badass because I think kind of what I'm hearing is however, the, I mean, I don't know necessarily the right way to say this, but you haven't waited for permission. Like you didn't wait for permission from your parents to audition for this school and you didn't, you know, ask them, is it okay if I take, you know, you just did a lot, you've done a lot of things and maybe it's because you have felt like you've had to do it this vein on your own since right. you didn't have any family members who, who, who had pursued this career. But I want to know, oh, sorry, you were actually, I interrupted you. You were in the middle of finishing your audition story. No, I, I don't, where were we? I don't, Took <laughs> I don't off. Remember. Okay. So you, sorry. that's okay. That's okay. We, I'm, I'm clocking. So you're there. You, uh, you, you did all your auditions and you said, you don't know how to explain it, but when you got into NYU, when you did your NYU audition. Well, when I was waiting in the waiting room, when I fell asleep, that's where I was going. I just felt like I belong there. I just felt like I belonged there. I was just like, 
this is where I need to be. Even though purchase was my first choice and purchase at the time was very competitive. They took like 10 people in that year and I, and it would have been cheap, really cheap. That's one thing. NYU is not cheap. Um, but I, for sure, I just had this overwhelming sense that this is where I needed to be. And, um, yeah, I, I did the audition for Beth Turner, who was amazing, amazing. I think she was a Dean at the time, but, um, auditor. And then she asked me, uh, what studio I wanted to be in. And I told her playwrights horizons, or I think Adler is what I chose. And she asked me why playwrights? Cause she thought I should be placed in experiment. What was then called experimental theater wing, which is very physical. So I understand it now. She saw in me that I'm a very physical person. Um, and uh, I told her, <laughs> this is the hilarious part. I told her playwrights was my number one choice because you can study directing, acting, and design, which is what I ended up doing. And I said, I need a fallback plan, <laughs> which is like directing and design, like great fallback but plan. But here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The other thing that I'm seeing is that you knew, um, if fallback plan or not, you wanted to study more than one thing. And most yes. people go in there saying, oh, I just want to be a movie star. So I have to go into Atlantic because David Mamet will cast me in. Like you wanted a more broad um, sense of, yeah, you, you were like, we have several actors on the show like this where it's, um, they're like more Renaissance people in terms of writing, acting, directing, and they're, and they're true. Like for me, what it is, is a true artist instead of an actor. It's a, it's more of a collaborator and doing, making art in a collaborative setting. And it happens to be for you right now, acting and maybe writing and maybe directing if you have or something. So I, I love that. And also my NYU audition I went without having picked a, a studio. So they asked me where you want to go. And I said, I have no idea. Well, they didn't let my ass in, nor should they have. <laughs> oh, no, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I think when I say fallback plan, I don't really think that is what it is. Cause I didn't think, obviously, you know, it's all a risk we're taking. It really is true that I was very, um, I'm very interested in all aspects of storytelling. And I did tell her that she asked me why directing. And I said, I am, I am incredibly stimulated in a different way when thinking about directing and how a story can be told and how it's structured and, and all of that. And, and I said, but it's not necessarily my heart. My heart is acting, but my mind is very connected to directing when she asked me that question. Um, so yeah. So cool. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier your manager and saying you're going to be over the hill and so forth. So we spent a lot of time talking about the whack messages that we got, especially being, uh, you know, 90s, mid 90s, late 90s about like what you can and can't do and who you are and who you aren't and how you come across it. And, and sometimes those opinions are wildly off base and sometimes they're smack right on. What, what about you? Where did you fall on that with terms of like the, the feedback people was, were giving you? Um, you know, it's, I think I'm still dealing with that today. I mean, I, I, the feedback was people couldn't tell if I was a leading lady or if I was a character actor. And I will say they probably thought I was a character actor just because I was a woman of color. 
You know what I mean? Like, you're going to be the best friend. Right. It's because they couldn't see beyond their own biases and the biases of the industry. And look, I think some of that is a product of the environment those people are in. But also, nobody challenged. And that's what I'm asked. I feel like people are at least starting to do now. Challenged why someone couldn't do something. So, yeah. So, they told you, oh, we think you're going to be like, you know, Sandra Bullock's best friend or like... um, whatever what the sidekick because probably because you you're an asian american woman you know yeah or you're the nerd or you know put on some glasses and now you're like network nerdy um you know so it's 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 how did did you ask me how did i deal with it is that i'm just curious like people usually have an anecdote or two about like you know I just told it on the podcast last week that, you know, I went to this thing when I was in high school, like how to get in the business. And the only thing I remember the guy saying is thin is in and you're either going to get thin or you're not going to be in like it was just very binary. And by the way, that was true. Like He wasn't he wasn't saying anything that wasn't true, but it doesn't matter because I internalized that message and then I never wanted to be in film. And then I was like, I'll, okay, that means I can never be in film and TV. Yeah. And I never even thought twice about it until like two weeks ago that's, when I remembered th- that. That's so heartbreaking. That's so heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, my parents even honestly said, you can't be an actor. You're, you're Asian, you know, there's nobody like you. There's no, there's not many women like you. You're not going to be successful. You're going to be hungry all the time. You're never going to, you know, And, you know, they weren't totally wrong. They weren't trying to hurt me. They, you know, they, I think they were trying to protect me, but ultimately it hurt me. Do you know what I mean? It hurt my confidence. It hurt, you know, so a lot of my defense mechanism is to have confidence, if that makes any sense. Well, that's, Um, that's what I'm getting is that in response to the binary, you were able to go, well, no, I'm going to actually take care of my own self and take my own shoes off if I want to. Actually, I'm still going to move forward and be like, I just love the idea of a woman of color being on a soap opera as one of the, like a recurring main characters, because soap operas to me in terms of casting have not in the past been known to really embrace all kinds of things. But here you are on like Americana, which is soaps to me. And I mean, you have telenovelas and whatever, but, but American soap operas are a thing and you're on one. So I know the word trailblazer is so overused, but I feel like you're a trailblazer and what people fail to remember about trailblazers is, is that it's dirty, sweaty, hard work because you're literally in the dirt forging a path for yourself and perhaps those that come after you. Do you feel like that when you're working that you're, and it's not fair to put it on people like women of color or women or othered people, but do you feel like in some way you're blazing a trail for other folks or do you just are just like, no, I just, I want to work fuck the rest no i i appreciate that question i i feel hopeful that that's what's happening do i think about it consciously when i'm working not necessarily but i do intend to if i can give other people opportunities like if i don't suit a role if they're like well this person's vietnamese will you audition i pass and i usually you know i've played other asian races before because there are limited amount of roles but i also believe like you have to get to a certain level and have a certain level of, uh, of accomplishments in order to open the door for other people. So I will, I have like said, 
I'm passing on this, but this is this actress that you should look at. And I've sent names and, you know, things, little things like that within my power. And I'm not trying to say like I'm a trailblazer or anything like that. I'm just trying to do the work, like you said, and uh, take the opportunities when I can and try to do my best at it. And then hopefully set it some kind of example. I don't know what, Yeah, um, it is a lot. And I I think that like trailblazing is, is, um, is done primarily because there is something doesn't exist which we want to see existing. And so then we right. have to do it on our own. Like, I agree that like, I never woke up and thought, Oh, one day I'm going to be like do, doing all this work. Um, I just thought, no, like w- why doesn't this exist? Why can't plus size right. or Latinas do this? And then I went ahead and tried to make that space. But yeah, I yeah. feel like, most trailblazers I know and iconoclasts or whatever don't like have that intention, right? We're not like, oh, I'm going to change. It's more like, no, this shit is wrong. It should exist. And I'm going to participate in change, right? Like a change maker. I'm going to take, I'm going to take space basically and not be apologetic for it. And, and that's a very hard thing to, to come to, you know, it's like, it's still, I want to apologize all the time. You know what I mean? But that's my instinct. But because I want to be a fair person, but I think ultimately it's like, no, I, I should claim the space and not be apologetic for it. I mean, I had a teacher in theater school and you're saying, what do people put on you? Who said to me, um, Tina, he said something very complimentary about a project I had just finished and something like, you know, good marks or something and said like, you're, you're very talented or uh, whatever. And then he said, what I love about you is that you shatter stereotypes and on the face of it, you would think that's a positive thing. But I think it put a heavy weight on me. I think I felt this sort of, that's not what I'm, you're, you're putting, that means you're putting so much on me when you even look at me. There's, a, there's an expectation of you have to be excellent all the time. You have to be so good all the time. And if, you not, if you're not excellent, people are going to go, oh, Asian women can't act or Asian women shouldn't be doing this. And so there was a pressure, like I felt, wow, like, I guess he was trying to say something nice, but ultimately it just put this sort of... No, it puts more you know, work. It, it it's more me, it work. Tells, more work, and it, and it also puts, like, you see me as a certain lens. You can't just see my work. You're seeing something yeah. else. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it's if you nuance. could go back in time, if you could go back in time, you'd say to him, oh, well, you're not sh- shattering any right. stereotypes. Right. You're right. acting exactly like every but, fucking asshole theater right. teacher who's told like, women things like that before. Yeah, but it's it's an awkward thing to approach because you know they're not trying to be rude or or not trying to be demeaning. No, it's a systems problem. The lack of understanding. It's a systems yeah. problem. So so now what I I've and maybe you do this too and maybe Gina you do it like now I say like Oh, like, let's ask the question. I wonder why that stereotype exists in the first place and who is that benefiting? And let's like start there. Like, let's go a little bit under the compliment sandwich and see like, oh, but like, wouldn't it be awesome? And no one's going to say this at, I don't know, maybe kids now do say like, hey, wouldn't it be awesome teacher, boss, mother, father, if we could get to the bottom of why that shit started in the first place and who benefits from it? Because then we could really, instead of like, but for me, if someone gives me a compliment and I'm 17, I go, oh yeah, I'm breaking stereotypes all the time of it. And that's great. And then you realize it's a heavy burden. It's a heavy burden to, yeah. 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 And it also tells you that 
they're still looking at that, that that person is still looking you at you through the white gaze, the, the framing your success on the white gaze, right. Or, or the male gaze or, you know, whatever it would be, you know, the patriarchy, it's kind of like this idea. It reminds you of the framework that's there that you're limited to working in and you will only be seen through that lens. And that's a, that's a, a different, that's a, that's, that reminds you of the, the trap you're in. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, because if you're, if your only framework is white American theater, that's how you're going to frame it. You shatter stereotypes instead of you're a part of American theater. You, you are the future of American theater, right? Which is a different, right. a different way of seeing it. So anyway, there was that. And then the other time you're asking what they did, what happened to another anecdote was when my mother was, I was my mom's caregiver when she was sort of in her final days, she passed. And, uh, my manager called me, this is not theater school, but at the time a manager called me and he said, you know, we were talking about schedule. And then he said, uh, Hey, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. Thinking he was going to ask me, how are you doing? Your mother just passed away. He knew for years I was caring for her. And I said, uh, and I said, sure, go ahead. And he says, did you get fat since your mom died? And I had, I had, I had gained weight. Um, but because I, while I was taking care of my mom, I was like, you know, she was dying. So I had gotten on anti-anxiety pills at the time, right? So I gained weight. And I was so shocked he said that. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I actually have put on weight. And I said, but I'm not going to apologize for that because my mom died. And like, that's, that I, I'm not going to beat myself up while I'm grieving as well about that. And then, Fuck you. And then he, Fuck you. I know, and then he backpedals and he goes, <clears throat> well, I'm going to get in trouble for saying all this. That he backpedaled and he said, uh, you know, because heroin skinny isn't hot either. So he tried to say, like, being fat isn't good and being or overweight isn't good and being skinny isn't good. So I said to him, so when am I going to hit the perfect note for you? When is it going to be perfect? Are you going to – I'm just not going to – I said, I'm not going to guilt myself over this because the next you're going to know you're going to – someone's going to tell you that my nose is too big and then I'm going to get a nose job. And then – and then I said, and then I'm going to get my cheat jaw done. I'm going to get all this stuff done that I'm insecure about. Like, when does it end? I said, when I go in the room, I deliver myself. And that's what I'm going to deliver the best and with the most confidence. And if you start to make me feel bad about everything, other little thing that's wrong with me, I'm just going to be like every other broken person here. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how can God you? bless Yeah, you. we don't. God bless you for saying the, that. Like, not everybody would have all the wherewithal to say that at a young age, especially. He just hit, he just hit a button. You know, <laughs> I was also like. I had had a when my mom died. I was like, new policy. Yeah, no more ass. Yeah, well, the other thing, no more the other thing is like, I wonder, and I don't know this person. They could be a perfectly lovely person, but I wonder if he would have said that to a white man client. Like, would it even be a thing? Would it even be, you know, like, you know, did someone say to Russell Crowe? Did his manager say that when he put on weight? No, probably said, "Wow, you you could play anything. You're so diverse. You can play Russell. You could play. It doesn't matter what you know what I mean." But if it's Brendan a woman, Frazier, right, a whale. right, right. Yes, oh, which we haven't talked about on here yet because I haven't seen it, but I'm, I'm dying to see that. So, so yeah. something tells me that you are uh, when it came time to end and and why you did showcase or whatever you weren't like putting all your hopes and dreams in something that the school was going to offer you or not offer you. So tell us about like when you were launching and how you made your, how you, how you made your moves. Okay. Woo girl. Um, so 
we didn't do, I don't remember doing an industry night at NYU. And I think I remember feeling like we were not really set off into the world for success. I mean, the most valuable thing I gained from theater school is all the amazing artists that I met there and all the amazing people that I still work. I have a theater company in Los Angeles called Ammunition Theater Company. I'm one of the founding members. We just did a world premiere of Carla Ching's new play, Revenge Porn. Um, It's uh, the people that I've met there. Those artists are, that's what I walked away from college with and people that makers that I'll always run into and work with for the rest of my life. The school itself, amazing training, very hard, very, very hard. Um, we were scheduled up to the hilt. We had to schedule in pee breaks and stuff. I was, I was in a program that everyone lovingly dubbed the suicide track, which is a terrible thing to call anything in college, but that's what we called it. Um, because it was acting, directing and design. And, um, but we didn't get, we didn't get set up. Like we couldn't, we weren't even allowed to really mingle with the film department, which would make sense if there was a marriage between the acting schools and the film departments, because NYU had one of the finest film departments, uh, film schools in the country, if not the world. So it was one of those things that I felt was odd because they wanted to protect like the conservatory program and like, you know, we're real actors. We're not doing film. We're, you know what I mean? There was like a weird, you could only audition for things outside of school after your sophomore year. Uh, you could only, you know, there were rules that I, I understand, but to some degree, but in terms of setting up your graduates for a working life, that was not the concern. For it's the as if they design so. conservatories to be so great and insular and amazingly exclusive. And then um, once you graduate, your life stops and that's it. And there is no, like, you will just be stuck at 19, 20 forever. And they never, like, imagine you'd have to actually get a job outside of the, uh, a conservatory. It's like, no, dudes. I no. wish, uh, yeah. I wish there was like a business of acting. I wish there was a how to do your taxes as an actor. I, I wish there was learning about a, a pass through, an escort. I wish there was like, you know, just the nuts and bolts of how to be an adult as an actor going forward. Um, you know, we had a we had a theater for nonprofit with class, which I was like, great. That's I do that now, but I'm also like, I think I could have figured that out at some point. Um, so you grad, you, know, you graduated and you were kind of like, how did it go? Tina, were you like, I'm I, where did you stay New York? You, when did you come to LA? I mean, I'm mindful of time, but here's what I want to know how you launched yourself. And because I just b- probably believe it was stunning, right? The way you launched yourself. Well, I, graduated and then I moved to the Bay Area, which was like a very strange little blip. And so I went there and I'm not, I'm not, I don't regret it, but I was uh, with my partner who I ended up, we ended up getting engaged and, and he was going to Stanford grad school. So that was a rough period, but I did a lot of theater and I feel like I did learn a lot about myself as an artist there and how to be independent on that in that way. And, you know, creating, high art, you know? Um, but I got a movie. I, I I ended up getting an agent in San Francisco and, um, got a movie, which ended up taking me down to Los Angeles. I joined the union. I was the lead of this film. It went to a bunch of festivals and in LA, what I ended up doing was, what's it called? Just so we can look it up. It's silly. It's called pig hunt. Great. I don't care that it's silly. I'll take it. I'll watch it. 
Um, uh, yeah, it's just like a, a fun monster movie. Um, so yeah, I did that. And then the, just the work wasn't enough in San Francisco to, to keep it afloat. So I thought now's the time to start going to Los Angeles. And I started dipping my toe in Los Angeles. And how I did that was back then they had casting director workshops. You guys know those, right? Um, but I was interning, so I would be working and at those things and getting those for free and meeting casting directors and somehow getting appointments. And then I started a fake uh, a fake management company. Oh my gosh, should I be saying this? Um, with like yes, you should because yes. you can always edit it out later if you change your and mind. And also, um, a lot yeah. of a lot of badass people have done this. FYI. Yeah. So I started a fake management company called Fisher Management. I made a logo and I was interning at a casting office as well, a couple of casting offices. So I saw how the submissions were coming in and I saw we would D pile, C pile, B, you know, piles for agencies and passes. And um, I remember I'd read, I'd be a reader for the casting office. And so they gave me a couple auditions, took a bunch of acting classes. My first agent in LA came from an acting class. A teacher said, you should have an agent and this is who you should meet with. Um, and the fake management company, I started just submitting to things like, you know, submitting through someone else had the breakdowns cause you used to be able to get the breakdowns too. And I would format it correctly. Like I learned at the, at the casting office. And then I just show up and get the appointments. I changed my voicemail. I didn't have my own voice. I, you know, you've reached Fisher management to reach any of our clients, please leave a message after the beep or whatever it is. And, um, yep, that's what, that's what I did. And I got my first few jobs <sighs> that way. So we need to write, the three of us need to write a pilot. That's like not quite a take on breaking bad, but it's fault. It's mirroring this idea of like how you just have to grab it for yourself. And we could be having our fake, um, you know, management company and swindling people and we get real evil <laughs> and we turn like you know threatening people if we don't get jobs we smoke there, a little math some... <laughs> just just for fun just on the side just a little math just a little the... math on the side i was in the bay area too after college oh. like so from yeah i lived in oakland from uh, like 97 to 2002 um so i i'm just curious what theater companies you worked with and what kind of stuff you did there um, intersection for the arts, uh, and Campo Santo. So I worked with them for a couple of shows, uh, which was really great. And a uh, word for word theater company as well. We did a Amy Tan yes. show that ended up going, yeah, you know, word for word. So yes, Sue and yes. Joanne and all of them, they're so wonderful. And we, we did, a we did an Amy Tan show that ended up like kept getting revived for like five years. We went to France with the show. We toured California. We, yeah. So, so those oh, two companies. Cool. Yeah. So, um, since we only have a few minutes, I want to ask. I hope my story is making feel... sense. I'm sorry. Oh, if I no, no, no. Perfect sense. 100%. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, perfect sense. So, um, do you feel like where you're at now in your career that you're, nobody's ever scratching all of the itches, but that like you're scratching the amount of itches that you want to scratch and like, what do you want to do next and where do you see yourself going? Such a good question. Um, well, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, during the pandemic, I also, you know, it was like, how are we going to work when everything was frozen? And we, I just got rid of so much of my clothing and turned my closet into a, you know, a recording studio and started, got a voiceover agent and started doing voiceovers, which was really, 
really has been really fun for me. Um, I also have a production company called One to One Productions with my business partner, Carla Mosley, who's also a soap actress. Um, but she also went to NYU. She's incredibly talented. Um, but we've been producing films and short films of, of women of color and people we believe in, writers we believe in. And uh, we, we currently have a pilot that we produced by Carolyn Rattaray. And that is in Urban World Film Festival uh, in New York uh, next week. It was at Seattle Queer Film Festival. It was just at Outfest in L.A. So it's been doing well. Um, am I scratching the itches? I mean, I'm doing a lot. <laughs> I would say um, I just did this play, Revenge Porn, um, or The Story of a Body by Carla Ching. And I got to be, I feel like it's, I was the lead of, I was the lead of the title, the lead of the show. I mean, it was an ensemble piece, but because everybody was so incredible. Um, it was the first time I felt like seen fully as an artist. And, it, you know, I was like, I, it, it ended like a week ago. It closed oh, and I, my heart was so broken. Yes, but, but you. you did. I mean, I just love hearing yeah. that you were seen fully as an, as an yeah. artist. That is like, ah, yeah. uh, fucking amazing. Yeah, I'll tell you what, it was, you know, we spend so much of our time feeling dissatisfied in the work that we're in, right? And what we're doing every day. And it was just so good to feel like, like, it's going to make me cry thinking about like, I, I just got to do it. You know what I mean? Like, I got to be like the fe a female Breaking Bad type character, you know, like, we don't have any of that. I was a flawed pe person. I was vulnerable. I was tough. You know, she, she Kat was, I mean, Kat, the character, she's ferocious. She protects the ones she loves. Um, it was, I really, and, and I wanted, I was really proud of it. Like doing, getting to be all of those things on, on, on a stage um, and to have a, a storyline centered around me and my, my cultural identity wasn't the central, wasn't like my trauma and all of that wasn't the central piece of the story, but it was a part of the story. You know, it was, it, it was informed my entire character. So yeah, man. I'm, I'm, I relate to that. Theater, theater really scratches that itch. Yes, it does. You know, when it's when it's good yes. and when you're really feeling in yourself and you're really vibing with the audience, like there is, it's like a. I wish I could mainline that feeling. And it's I got so to work. Great. And I got to work with these actors, these act, these other actors like Jeannie Sakata and Nelson Lee and Christopher Larkin and the playwrights amazing, Kyun Kim who went to Juilliard. Um, you know, these are these are all these amazing actors that we all never get to play these things. Well, right. And, and I, my genie, genies. I was just going to say that representation matters. Um, people stop there, but for me, it's the kind of sto that stories representation. Uh, stories matter, you know, not just putting yeah. bodies on a stage that are a certain look or a certain ethnicity, yeah. but what is the actual motherfucking story that we're representing on yeah. stage or on screen? Yeah. So go ahead. I'm going to cut you off about the playwright. No, no, it's okay. No, it's okay. It's just, you know, Carla tells these Asian American stories and we don't have a lot of Asian American stories. It's like you need to know Kung Fu or you need to speak three languages or you need to be able to do all of these things. Like, what if you're just someone who grew up here and doesn't see themselves ever anywhere and have to like project yourself onto these other characters you see that are just living their lives in America and grappling with how they fit into that puzzle, that puzzle without it being about, do you know what I mean? Just I'm American. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I love. And by the way, you know, what if what if every white actress had to learn a martial art in order to do their to do a part? Like, I mean, well, we'd have a lot fewer actresses. Which my but those, listen, those stories the stories are all valid. I I, I think all of those in immigration stories, all of that is a hundred percent important and part of the story. But it's not the whole story. No, and and we cannot and we cannot be told what stories we're allowed to, to-, to be told. Like. That story isn't Asian enough. Right. Like, what? No, it is. I, I'm telling. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, we are, I think it comes down to, like, for me too, like, as a Latina but born in this country, doesn't speak, I'm not fluent. Like, it's, we're told, all of us are told we're not enough or too much. And what I'm hearing right. from you is, and what I think is coming next is, no, 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 this is enough. We are enough, and there is enough story within what already exists to be true that we can mine so that we don't have to come up with 700 million more stories about, you know, Latinas that are maids. Like, let's not do that. Let's, like, mine what we've got right in front of us before it disappears, you dumb fuckers. Anyway, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, like I was going to say, Jeannie Cicada, who's the, the more mature, one of the, she played my mom in the play. She's she's like kind of a stage legend. She's like East West players, you know. She she said um, to me and to Carla, you know, I think I've waited my entire career for some of the scenes that I get to do in this play, like just to have a scene that where she's a full complex person, you know. And like, I mean, it just I haven't waited as long as her, but I'm grateful for people like her who is a true trailblazer. Do you know what I mean? So I think like, you know. I gotta give I give it gotta give my my sister props on that. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survive Theater School is an undeniable ink production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!